Well, good morning, church. So good to see each of you this morning. If you have your Bible, open up to the book of Exodus chapter 4. Uh, Exodus chapter 4, we're going to be in verse 21, and we're going to go all the way through chapter 6, verse 9, as we continue our series and journey through the book of Exodus called Rescued and Redeemed. We are looking at how great our God is, how he rescues us from our slavery to sin, and how he redeems us and makes us his own. And so we're going to dive deep into that uh, today. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, you can look on the screens with us. Uh, And so um, we are just so glad that everybody's here. Thank you if this is your first time with us. As Will said earlier, uh, we're especially glad to welcome you with us today. Uh, Please stop by and see our team in the cafe after uh, the service today. We'd love to get the chance to to chat with you for a bit. So let me pray uh, and let's, let's start and see what God has for us today. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you that you are our King. Lord, you are our Creator. Lord, you are our Savior. And we thank you for loving us the way you do. I pray that we would see and experience and feel your grace and your presence in our hearts and minds today. Holy Spirit, use your word to speak deep into our hearts and truly transform us. Lord, as we just sang, would you tune our hearts into yours, Lord? Knit our hearts together with yours. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last week we saw that God called and commissioned Moses to lead this great rescue mission to rescue his people, Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, right? To rescue them out of their bondage and slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt. And so Moses, when God tells him, hey, this is the plan, this is what we're going to do, how does Moses respond? Lord, please send somebody else to do that, right? Moses does not want to do this, right? He begs God to send someone else. But what does God say to Moses? God assures Moses that he will be with him and he's going to equip him and give him everything he needs to succeed in this mission because the mission is not about Moses. The mission is about God and what he's doing to rescue and redeem his people. So God gives Moses in chapter 4, he gives him family support. He gives him assurance of safety. He equips him with the right tools. He literally gives him a shepherd's staff that he's going to use through Moses to do great and mighty acts of power and miracles. And God even gives him the game plan for this mission. So look with me in chapter 4, verse 21. We're going to pick up there. And just for sake of time, as we go through Exodus, we are going to have to skip over some of the passages of Scripture. So we're kind of hitting the highlights of the story today. But chapter 4, verse 21 is where we'll begin. So, the God, so God gives Moses all of these assurances, and he says this, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but... I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now that probably confused Moses because he's thinking, okay, so you're telling me that you're going to do all these mighty powers. You're sending me to rescue your people. And I know that you're going to work through me like that, even though I don't want to do this. But you're also saying that 
Is it not going to work that you're not going to let Pharaoh let us go? Right? So God gives Moses that assurance, but this is probably not the plan, the way that Moses would want to do this. God tells Moses ahead of time that he is going to allow opposition and hardship. And notice, that is part of God's plan in rescuing his people. Hold on to that thought. But God is also guaranteeing that he is going to walk with his people through this. He's going to lead them and they will be victorious. So now it's time to get the Israelites on board with this game plan. This what we're about to read. Just imagine if you worked for a major company and you had to go in before the CEO and the board of directors to pitch this business idea that you've got. Right? You know how nervous you would be in that room? Well, that's essentially what Moses is doing here. Look at verse 29 to 31. Then Moses and Aaron, so Aaron is his brother. Remember, God said, I'm going to help give you a helper. This is him. So the brothers, Moses and Aaron, went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. So those are the leaders, right, of the tribes of Israel together. Verse 30, Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. I mean, they see these miraculous signs that Moses can do with the shepherd's staff that God gave him. They hear this great plan that God has heard them and wants to rescue them, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. They were so excited to hear that God was not going to leave them in their slavery, in their bondage. He was going to rescue them. And so, of course, they worship him in response to that good news. So they hear this plan. They see the signs. They're convinced. This is a good thing. Good things are happening for these people who have been in slavery for hundreds of years. So at this point, there's an emotional high, right? I mean, this is like, this is like before the kickoff to the football game. You've got a good game plan, right, for your team, and you're pumped, and you're super, you're super hopeful, right, before the kickoff. Both teams are excited. We're going to win. So they're feeling good. But now... They have to actually go do this. They have to go before the most powerful ruler in the world at the time. Pharaoh, the king of ancient Egypt, the greatest empire of the world at the time. And they're essentially about to tell him that he's about to lose his labor force. They're leaving town. Now, how's that going to go? Let's see. Exodus chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Exodus 5, 1 and 2. After, afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? That I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Now, I want you to notice when you see the word Lord, L-O-R-D, in all caps, that is referring to the personal name that the Hebrews called God, Yahweh, in the Hebrew language. 
So this is God's personal name. I am who I am. Remember we looked at that last week in the burning bush? That's what God said when Moses said, who are you? What is your name? What should I tell the people? I am who I am. I am not like anyone else. And so God is this personal God. And so Pharaoh is saying, I don't know Yahweh. I don't know your God. I don't have a relationship with him. I don't know him. Why should I have to obey him? So I'm not going to do anything he says. So this is like, after the kickoff or during the kickoff when your team fumbles the kickoff, right? (laughs) You were super excited before the game started and now you fumble the kickoff. The other team has recovered, right? Israelites, they were ready. They were excited for this plan, this game plan, but this is a huge setback immediately. This is not what they expected, but remember, remember what God told Moses? He was going to let this happen. Hold on to that. So Pharaoh says, I don't know God, but this request, this request from the people, it gets Pharaoh thinking, right? And so he's saying, okay, well, you know what? Maybe they're not busy enough. If they feel like they have enough time to go and leave out into the wilderness and worship their God, maybe they're not busy enough. They're lazy. They need more work to keep their minds focused on my construction projects. I'm building an empire here. They don't, have, they don't need to have time to worship their God. So you know what Pharaoh does? He comes up with a very wicked and even more oppressive plot. Look at verses 6 through 9, Exodus 5. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. They're lazy. Let's give them more work to do. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Pharaoh thinks Moses and Aaron are lying. Pharaoh thinks that he can impose his will on the people, that he can oppress them so greatly that they don't have any time to think about their God. This is not how... Moses and the Israelites wanted things to go. It's not how they had hoped things would go. Things are now getting worse. Ever since God told them that he was going to rescue them, things have gotten worse. The people have to produce the same number of bricks for these great Egyptian construction projects, but they have to go gather all the materials themselves. And in our modern minds, that's hard to imagine, but do you know how hard that was in ancient Egypt, they're going to have to work harder. They're going to have to work faster to keep up with expectations. And the whole while, they're going to be oppressed and beaten. So their situation is getting much worse. Not only that, but Pharaoh says, I'm not letting them go. They're staying with me. This is my labor force. I'm going to keep them here. So they have to be thinking, okay, what is going on? Why is God's plan not working? So some of the Israelite foremen go to plead with Pharaoh about this. 
but he calls them lazy. He doubles down on this new harsh labor in chapter five. Now they realize how bad this has gotten. And so after they plead with Pharaoh to please change things and he refuses, they leave that meeting and they walk out of the room and they see Moses and Aaron. Boy, this is about to be an interesting conversation. Chapter five, verses 20 and 21, they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. These are the same people who just a moment before were bowing their heads and worshiping because they believed Moses and Aaron. They saw the signs and they heard the plan and they believed and they were excited and morale is at an all-time high. And the tables have turned. Now morale is at an all-time low. They're not just discouraged, they're angry. To them, all hope is lost. What about Moses, you know? Like, I mean, he's the leader. Will he rise up and be the leader of faith? Will he give them this great speech as their leader and convince them, hey guys, we're not out of this, come on. God's going to deliver. Well, no, look what Moses says. Verse 22 and 23, then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why? Why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Moses has reached a low point too. He's basically saying, why, God? Why? How could you let things get worse? We believed in you. We are your people. How could you let things get worse? Why are you delaying this rescue plan? How could you let this happen to us? Don't you love us, God? Aren't you supposed to be there for us, Lord? But is this story over? You see, God has something to say. Listen to what he says in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. He speaks to Moses, but the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out. And with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, Listen to this. This is so good. God tells Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. God's saying, listen, this plan of redemption has been enacted, and this plan I remembered from long ago, your ancestors, I told them, and they didn't even know me. I haven't revealed myself as much to them as I have to you. So you should believe me even more. Say therefore, he says, verse six, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will. If you have an Exodus scripture journal, I want you to take something out and I want you to underline, 
I will. Underline that. I will. And I will, God says, bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will. Underline that one. I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will. Underline that one. Redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will, verse 7, underline, take you to be my people. And I will, underline that one, be your God. Do you see? Do you see the trend in the scriptures? I will, God says. It's not I might. It's not I won't. It's not if I get around to it. It's not if I remember, it's I will rescue you. I will redeem you. And what does that mean for us? Look at the rest of verse 7. God says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And what does that mean for the Israelites? And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Boy, you will be convinced in the way that God is going to act among these people, he says, you will know who I am. I am going to reveal my character and my strength in ways that only this suffering can magnify. And everyone will know the one true God. Pharaoh and the gods of the Egyptians will crumble down before my feet. And I will be the only one left standing because I am the Lord, he says. I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Verse 8, I will, underline that one, bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will, underline that one, give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. <laughs> See, that's the leader's speech that Moses should have been reckoning with and he didn't. God steps in and says, I am your leader. I will rescue and redeem you. Now, let me ask you, that's quite the speech from our God. Does he sound doubtful? Does he sound discouraged? Does he sound like things have gotten out of his control somehow? And he's going to have to figure this out like a great puzzle. Is he panicking? Is he angry? No. He is the Lord. He is who he is. There is no one like him. This amazing speech of confidence from God should boost and rally the troops, right? Look at verse 9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. The Israelites couldn't truly believe and trust that God had a plan and was somehow still in control. They were too low. They were too discouraged. And even God's word, even the words of God himself could not lift them up in the moment. It couldn't encourage them in the moment. So we're going to stop right there for today and Paul's in our journey through Exodus. But let me ask you, have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like that? That your life has reached some kind of all-time low 
or that you're walking through different pains and sufferings that you never thought you would have to go through. And you would never vocalize this, but in your heart of hearts, there is doubt and a question lingering on your mind. Where is God in this? You see, this story today reminds us that two things are true at the same time. Even though it really doesn't seem logical or possible. You see, on one hand, there's the truth that we live in a broken world cursed by sin. Sin has wreaked havoc on this world. So there's suffering physically, spiritually, socially, emotionally. There's suffering in this world. There will be antagonistic opposition to God and his plans in this world. There will be setbacks. There will be disappointments. But on the other hand, this story teaches us that God is on his throne, that he is completely sovereign, that there's nothing outside of his control from the major events of human history to the minute personal details of your life. How can both of those things be true? This story shows us, tells us those things are true. So how do we reconcile those, those truths? How do we reconcile those truths in our lives today? Well, this is one of those things where we have to lean into what we know is true. What God has told us about this particular topic, even if we can't fully understand or comprehend it. And guess what? We can't. You know, we're, we're not God. That, that might come as a shocker to some of you. But you're not God. And so what we know, man, what we know about all the things that are happening in our lives and in this world compared to what God knows, I mean, really, there's literally no illustration I could even come up with. It's like maybe, I don't know, one grain of sand on the beach compared to all the rest around the world. That's what we know compared to what he knows. You see, this is one of those things where we have to believe what God has revealed to us about this. So here's the main point today. Here's what we have to believe and know and trust because God tells us this is true and he is God and we are not. God orchestrates all circumstances for his glory and our good. God orchestrates everything, all circumstances for his glory and our good. How do we know that? Listen to what the Lord tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Many of you probably know this verse by heart. Romans 8, 28, and we know, this is what we know. Okay, so there's a lot of things we don't know. But here's what Paul says, the apostle Paul says in the New Testament, we do know this. We know that for those who love God, for those who belong to Jesus Christ, and have been adopted by God the Father into his family and regenerated by the Holy Spirit for those who know God and love God, get this, all things, some things, only the good things you mean. Only the things that I'm in control of. No, 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 no. All things, all circumstances, everything that happens in your life and everything that happens in this world, all things work together. I mean, a lot of things seem like they don't work together. A lot of things seem opposite and contradictory. But no, 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 no. Paul says everything works together 
Because there is a creator and a sustainer of the universe who sees what you can't see, who knows what you don't know. And so he is weaving together like a, mas a master basket weaver, just weaving everything together or a, a designer weaving fabric together to create a beautiful picture that you can't understand. All things work together for some good, for amusement, for observation's sake. No, all things work together for what? Say it. Good. For good. For who? For you. For those who are called according to his purpose. For his people. Does God protect his people? Yes. So now think about how this is true in our story today. All right? Go back to the story today. Think about it. How is he working these events out for his glory? Everything's for his glory. Everything's for our good. How is this for his glory? Well, think about what Pharaoh said in his arrogant way. He said what? I don't know the Lord. I don't know your God. Why should I have to obey his voice? Okay, well, what's God about to do? If you know how this story goes, we're going to see it next week. God is going to show Pharaoh. Oh, yeah. God is going to show Pharaoh who he is. He will know his name. Pharaoh will know who exactly the Lord is by the end of this. God is going to use Pharaoh's stubbornness. He's going to use those wicked actions to turn it into something that shines for his glory in a way that nothing else could make it do so. And power and the way he defeats Pharaoh. God is going to use those events and what's happening here to show a lost and dark world his glory so that we may know his name how is that good for Israel? Because as he makes his name known, as he reveals his power and his majesty, he is rescuing them through these mighty acts of power. Not only is he revealing who he is to the pagan Egyptians and to the rest of the world, he is also teaching his people about himself. Look at verse 7 again of Exodus 6. Exodus 6, verse 7. What is God saying? He says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. That is an amazing relationship. That sin separates us from having a relationship with God, but God is telling Moses here, yeah, but I'm going I'm to purchase you. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to take you to be my own. You will have a relationship with me, and look at that, and you shall know. Pharaoh may not know who I am, but you will know me in a personal, intimate way. So here's what we can learn. God orchestrates all things for his glory and our good. And you know what else? Here's what that means. There's two things I want to give you about what that means. Number one, that means we must trust his ways and timing. We've got to trust his way and his timing, and that is so hard to do. We're not accustomed to trusting anyone's ways and timing, right? I mean, when your boss at work tells you something, you, you guys know how it is, right? Well, I'd do it a different way. Ah, there's a better way than that. I would do it, I wouldn't do it that way, right? Or that timeline, that's too quick. It's not gonna work, or that's too, that's too long. We need to do it faster. 
We're never satisfied with timing and other people's ways. But listen to what the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 55, 8 and 9. He says, for my thoughts, this is God speaking. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, so what that tells us is we don't have to try to figure everything out that's happening in our lives. God's ways are different than the way we would do things. And that's okay because he's God and we're not. We don't have to understand why everything happens the way it does. Some things are only for God to know. So the issue is trust. Christian author Jerry Bridges, this is one of my favorite things that any Christian author has ever said. He, he talks about this in his book, Trusting God. He says, there are three truths about God that make him trustworthy. All right, now you may have trouble trusting people in your life, but here's why you don't have to have any trouble at all trusting God and what he's doing in your life today. Number one, God is completely sovereign. That means he's all powerful, right? Number two, God is infinite in wisdom. He knows all things. Number three, God is perfect in love. Now think about that. God is all powerful. He's infinitely powerful. He's infinitely wise. And he is perfect in love. Think about those three things together. You see, if God, Bridges says, if God was lacking even one of those characteristics, we couldn't trust him. You know, think about that. In other words, imagine if God was all powerful and loving, but not wise. Well, that means he has the power to rescue us and redeem us. He wants to do it, but he's not smart in the way he does it. So we couldn't trust him. Or get this, okay, well, <clears throat> what if God was all wise and all loving, but not all powerful? Well, again, it's great that he wants to help us out, but he just wouldn't have the power to do it. So we can't trust him. Here's the beautiful thing about our God. He's all three. He is all powerful. He is all wise. And he is all loving to you. So he is trustworthy. And that's why we can believe Romans 8, 28, that he is working out all things together for his glory and our good. But you know, we struggle not just with his ways and being able to trust him, but even, even knowing that truth, man, we are, we are just calendar-driven people, and so we have trouble trusting him with the timing that he does things, don't we? You know, I remember back in my college days, you know, my best friend was a microwave um, because it was awesome, right? I could just go to the grocery store, right? I could go to Publix, get me a frozen dinner, pop it in the microwave, right? Didn't have to cook, didn't have to clean up. It was amazing, right? It was so fast. It was perfect, right? And now I have a beautiful wife and we have yummy food and it's even better, right? So it's amazing, right? But here's the thing, right? Here's the thing. That microwave mentality, boy, that permeates our whole lifestyle and our whole society, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. We want things and we want them fast, right? 
I mean, Amazon two-day delivery, right? If it is one day late, we will panic. You know what I'm saying? Like, where's my package? Let me look at it. Let me track it, okay? Where is it? What are they doing? They're in my neighborhood. Why haven't they delivered it, right? So we just have this microwavable society and mindset where we think that things have to happen really fast or we're going to be upset. We're not going to be pleased. And boy, some of us, we put that pressure on ourselves, and that is a great reason that we doubt the Lord. Because that prayer that you've been praying, that request that you've been making to God, you're looking around and you don't see it delivered. See, this is happening in this story today. What's happening here? Did you notice the pace? It's slow. This great rescue plan, it's happening slowly. In a way where God's people are probably thinking that God has completely given up on them. But what is God doing? He is intentionally teaching them slowly. Did you hear that? He's intentionally taking this slow and revealing himself slowly to them so that they can learn through every moment and every circumstance more about how to love God, how to trust him, and how he works all things out for his glory and their good. Even in their suffering, God is not cruel to do that. He is gracious. He is gracious to lead us through and walk with us through our sufferings and our pain and our misery in life. He is gracious to hold your hand and walk with you through those things so that you can learn to lean and trust on your heavenly Father who loves you in a perfect way, who knows all things and has all the power in the universe, but He wants to know you. There's a story in the New Testament in John chapter 11 that is remarkable. One of Jesus' best friends was dying. His name was Lazarus. And he did die. But look at verse 5 and 6 of chapter 11. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he immediately got up and went and healed him. Is that what it says? When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was. He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. You see, no one else understood what was happening. No one else knew what was going on. Where is Jesus? Why is he not here? We know that he loves us. We know that he has spent so much time with us. Why is he not answering our prayers right now? Where is he? Does he not care? Has he grown lazy? Is he unaware? But Jesus knew. And if you know how the story goes, this was not the end of the story. 
What did he do? He came and he called, he went to the, the tomb where Lazarus had been for several days, dead. A corpse laying there, dead. Jesus comes to the tomb and what does he say? He says, Lazarus, come forth. And he raises Lazarus from the dead. Why? Why did he wait? So that the mighty power of God would be on display in a way that was good for Lazarus, in a way that was good for Martha and Mary, in a way that was good for every single person around them that would witness this historic event that only Jesus in the beginning knew how this would go down. And while everyone else was doubting, Jesus says, I know a better way. And it's for my glory and it's for your good so that you may know me. I don't want to undermine at all. I don't want to be insensitive at all to the struggles that you are going through in your life right now. My wife and I, we, we lost our first daughter to cancer. So I want you to know that we understand the struggle. We understand what it's like to have the ultimate pain, to feel like your heart's been ripped out of your chest. But what I know, see, there's, there's so much I don't know. And there's so much that I just, I don't understand. But I can tell you this, that what I know is that in the same way that Jesus called forth his best friend out of that grave, he's going to call forth my daughter out of her grave one day, and he's going to call forth me out of my grave one day, and he's going to call forth all of us out of the grave one day because he loves us and he knows us and he wants to live with you forever. And so no matter what you are going through, no matter how hard it is, do you trust that an all-powerful and an all-wise and an all-loving God has a plan for you even in the midst of your troubles? That brings us to the second and final thing I want to say. We, we must believe that no circumstance is wasted. So we don't understand his ways. We, we don't understand the timing. But we have to trust and know that he has every circumstance happening for a reason. Nothing is wasted. My, my kids and I, we're, um, I'm reading to them at night, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, except the kids' version, which is funny because the, apparently the kids' version is longer than the real version, and there's like 90 chapters. So I'll let you know how it goes in about three years when we're finished reading it. But, but uh, so, so I'm reading through Pilgrim's Progress with them, and it, it's cute. You know, the Christian, the main character is his name, and he's a little rabbit, you know, so it's all cute, right? But here's the thing. It's a pretty interesting story because little Christian is on this journey to the celestial city and he's walking through the way of the king trying to get to the celestial city. So this is allegorical, of course, for the Christian life, the Christian journey. So little Christian comes across all these opponents who work for the wicked prince. He comes across all this opposition he goes through all kinds of turmoil. 
He goes through all kinds of challenges. He goes through moments where he just wants to give up, where it doesn't seem like he'll ever arrive. He goes through all kinds of doubts, setbacks, delays. But yet, he keeps moving forward on the path because he knows that the king is calling his name, that the king loves him. Author Tim Chester says this about about the story we read today. He says, things got harder for God's people so that God can reveal his name, his character, and his power to them. God's people need to know who the Lord is. Every day spent gathering straw builds up more tension so that the revelation of God's name, when it comes, will be crystal clear. Every day that the Israelites had to gather more straw in the fields and bring it back to make those bricks and all of that harsh labor, that tension and that weight was bearing on them so greatly. But when the rescue comes, when God walks with them through every step of the way and leads them down the path to the celestial city, so to speak, to Canaan, the promised land, to heaven, the new heaven and the new earth where Jesus Christ is leading us. Every moment, every circumstance is not wasted. It is another opportunity for us to trust, to lean on our Father's arms who will carry us through. Romans 5, verses 3 through 5, Paul says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. It's not that we we want suffering. That's not it at all. Paul says, as we're suffering, we can still rejoice, knowing that, why? Because suffering produces something in us. God doesn't waste our suffering. It produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, the goal of our lives is not happiness on this earth. And I hope that you are happy. (laughs) Okay, I hope you are. I am. My wife and kids are happy. We love our life. I hope you're happy. But that doesn't mean that we're perfect. That doesn't mean there's not going to be struggles. But the goal is not happiness. The goal is to become more like Jesus. You may not see the things that are happening in your life right now as producing anything good. But I want to close by reminding us that that's probably what the disciples thought when they were standing there that day and Jesus was hanging on a cross naked and bleeding to death. How could any good come out of this? You see, the greatest demonstration of God taking a terrible situation and bringing good out of it for us and for his glory, you have to look no further than the cross. When Jesus hung on the cross, he was paying the penalty for your sin. in your place 
That should have been us paying the penalty for our own rebellion against God. That makes sense. But when God sent Jesus to die on the cross in your place, you know what? You know what was happening at the same time? The greatest act of evil and oppression and injustice was happening to Jesus himself while at the same time, the greatest act of love and grace and mercy was happening to you. Do you see that? How can we reconcile this mystery? How can we believe that God orchestrates all things to work for his glory and our good? Look no further than the cross. Because that shows us that God can do both at the same time. That he can release his wrath, but also forgive and love and grace flows out of him as well at the same time because Jesus absorbed the wrath and gave us the grace. Boy, that's beautiful. Because three days later, he rose from the grave to defeat the power of evil in this world. And if you have put your hope and your trust not in yourself, not in your circumstances, not in your emotions, or when you have high morale, but through every circumstance, if your hope and your faith and your trust is in a Lord and a Savior who died and bled for you, who rose from the grave and has the power over sin and death, if your hope lies in Him and not this world, then you are united with Him in a resurrection like His. And one day your grave will bust wide open when He returns. And calls you home to the eternal kingdom forever. Jesus says in John 16, 33. I have said these things to you. That in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. You see, Pharaoh in his arrogance, when things were going well for him, it was easy for him to say, I don't know the Lord. But in your darkest hour, you know what you can say? I know the Lord. And I know who he is. Because I have seen his hand on my life through every circumstance and every pain and every suffering. And so whatever is in front of me, I am trusting the one who has overcome the world and will overcome this. And do you believe that today? And let's not be like Moses and the Israelites and cower down in fear. Let's be like Jesus and trust that his death and resurrection, that he knows how to handle. He knows how to handle every circumstance because he already has. So whatever you're going through today, know that there is someone who is with you. You are not alone. He knows, he knows the pain. 
He's experienced it himself. That's why he can walk with you through it. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we are so grateful that we have a Savior who knows our sufferings. Jesus, we are so grateful that you can walk with us through every single hard, dark moment of our lives because we know that you have. You have already conquered. You have conquered the grave. So Jesus, I pray for every person in this room, whatever fear is keeping them up at night, whatever circumstance is weighing heavy on them, would you walk with them through it? Would you assure them of your presence? Lord, as we saw you repeatedly tell the people of Israel and Moses, I will I will, I will. Lord, let us believe that in our hearts. Let that ring true in our own ears. You will. Lord, you may not remove the circumstance, but you will walk with us through it. Lord, let us trust and know and believe that in that path, there is Christ-likeness. In that path, there is forever joy knowing that we are becoming stronger each, each and every day, more like you. And we know you better. We know who you are through our sufferings. So Lord, in that regard, thank you. Thank you for walking. Thank you for showing us who you are and drawing us to yourself. 